Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio. Today we'll cover political developments in Malaysia, updates on the ongoing conflict in Myanmar, and arbitrary detentions in Cambodia. I'm Jafet Kitsan. Today is February 8th, 2024. On today's episode... It's been an interesting time that we've seen across the board. And while there's certain things that haven't changed as we've done the report year on year, for example, what hasn't changed is that the region shows immense resilience in weathering some of the economic headwinds. For example, GMV continues to be up. GDP has been relatively stable. You haven't seen the inflation rates that have peaked in other parts of the world to the same extent. And so what I would say, though, has been the big shift is thinking about profitability. And when we say sustainability, that means the profitability of the companies in the region. Greg and Alina hosted Sapna Chatta, VP for Southeast Asia and South Asia Frontier at Google Asia Pacific, to discuss the contours of the recently released 2023 economy report. Before we get to that, let's start off with the headlines. First, we're changing things up a little here, right, Lauren? Right. Hi, everyone. It's Lauren Mai. Starting today, I'm Southeast Asia Radio's new permanent co-host. I'm really looking forward to playing a more permanent role on Southeast Asia Radio. So exciting to have you here. I can't wait to see what our cubicle banter becomes when it's put out live. Yeah, it'll be a good time. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Okay, well, let's get started with this week's headlines. First up. Last Wednesday, Malaysia got a new king, or Yang Di Pertuan Agong, or simply Agong. Really? What happened to the old Agong? Under Malaysia's unique constitutional monarchy, the hereditary rulers of nine Malaysian states take turns to be Agong, each for a five-year term. The last Agong, Sultan Abdullah Ahmad Shah of Pahang, stepped down early last week and was succeeded by Sultan Ibrahim Iskandar of Jauhor. Iskandar begins his term as Malaysia continues to be plagued with instability, amidst bickering politicians and rampant corruption. Many are expecting the new Agong to broker stability between Malaysia's different political factions, take a firm stance on corruption, and intervene in Malaysian politics more generally. In a pre-coronation interview, Iskandar seemed to welcome these expectations, warning Malaysia's members of parliament, I'm not with you, I'm with them, meaning the Malaysian people. This stands in stark contrast to the role usually afforded to Malaysia's constitutional monarch. A ceremonial position with some discretionary powers related to Islam and Malay-related matters. Given Iskandar's home state reputation as a hands-on ruler, that's not surprising. As Sultan of Jauhor, Iskandar requested the state's chief ministers to run major decisions by him and was quick to wade into hot-button issues at the state and federal levels. (laughs) Right. It's also somewhat expected because his immediate predecessor, Abdullah Ahmad Shah, became more and more involved in Malaysian politics over his five-year term. During the 2020 to 2022 Malaysian political crisis, Shah did the unprecedented and essentially handpicked Malaysia's prime minister on three separate occasions. And in one of his last official acts as king, Shah issued a royal pardon for jailed former prime minister Najib Razak, imprisoned for abuse of power and money laundering charges related to the infamous 1MDB scandal. The pardons board reduced Razak's fine from 210 million ringgit to 50 million ringgit and halved his 12-year prison sentence. Shah's decision sparked major backlash from critics who claim that it will jeopardize ongoing anti-corruption efforts. Ultimately, with royal interventions becoming more and more normalized, Malaysia faces a rocky road ahead. Current Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim, who has, for the past year and a half, been trying to stabilize the government, faces a new and emboldened actor on the political stage. 
How Anwar navigates his relationship with the king and how the king sees his relationship with parliament may determine the success of this government. Moving on to our next story. Three years have passed since the military junta took power in a coup in Myanmar. The February 1st anniversary comes as Myanmar's military junta faces the biggest challenge to its rule yet. Fighting continues throughout Myanmar, where ethnic armed organizations launched a coordinated offensive, Operation 1027, in late October 2023. Since then, the junta has lost control of at least 34 towns. Even pro-military opinion leaders have started to publicly call for Min Ong Liang to step down. So what does the three-year anniversary mean for Myanmar? For everyday people, not much. The junta announced another six-month extension of the country's state of emergency as the previous one expires. But still, anniversaries can be highly symbolic. On the eve of the anniversary, three of the ethnic armed groups issued a position statement offering to negotiate with military leaders to end military rule and peacefully transition to a civilian government. And the next day, people across the country participated in a silent strike, protesting the military junta. Representatives from the European Union, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Norway, South Korea, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom and the United States issued a joint statement condemning the military regime's ongoing atrocities and human rights violations, encouraging unified efforts by ASEAN to resolve the crisis. Where does ASEAN stand on the issue? ASEAN leaders recently got together at a foreign minister's retreat in Laos, where Myanmar was a hot topic, even starting with a guest list. Right, because for the first time since the coup, the junta accepted ASEAN's invitation to send a non-political representative to meetings, from which its top leaders are barred. At the retreat, the grouping agreed to send humanitarian assistance to Myanmar for the first time since the coup. Starting in February, it'll provide assistance to the Thailand-Myanmar border, providing medical supplies and food. With conflict in Myanmar testing ASEAN's internal unity and ability to address regional crises, the new humanitarian commitments seem to be a start. Or in the words of Lao Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, Solem Sai Komasith, a light at the end of the tunnel. Going into this third year of military rule, we'll have to keep an eye out for how ASEAN, under Laos's chairmanship, will continue pushing for peace efforts in embattled Myanmar. You can read more about the start of Laos's ASEAN year in last week's latest on Southeast Asia. Check it out on our website. Moving over to our final headline, Cambodian political opposition leader Kum Sokha had his request to review the terms of his home detention, denied by the Phnom Penh Appeal Court. Last March, he was sentenced to 27 years in prison under a politically motivated treason conviction. Currently, Sokha is under house arrest and cannot speak with anyone other than his family without prior court approval. That's not great. Yeah, his lawyer highlighted several instances where his client's right to consultation required advance approval by the prosecutor's office before defense counsel can meet Sokha. Before being placed under house arrest, authorities held Sokha for more than two years in pretrial detention in a remote Cambodian prison. Officials held him in isolation, denied him effective medical treatment, and refused access to all visitors other than his immediate family and his lawyers. Human rights groups and the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention have been advocating for Sokha's immediate release since his initial arrest in September of 2017 calling Sokha's pre-trial detention arbitrary and politically motivated. In March 2023, the European Parliament passed a second resolution on Sokha's case. The statement described his detention as a politically motivated arrest meant to eliminate one of Cambodia's main opposition leaders. To many observers, both domestically and internationally, Kem Sokha's detention exacerbates concerns about corruption in the Cambodian judiciary system. Right. So what's going to happen to him now? It's unclear what will happen in this case. The appeal court's denial of Sokha's request was only the first of nine expected appeal hearings in his case. Let's hope for the best. Crossing my fingers. Those were our headlines. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Sapna Chada. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio, everybody. I am Greg Poling with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined as every week by Alina Noor with the Carnegie Endowment. Hey, Alina. Hello, hello. And our very special guest this week is Sapna Chada. Sapna is the Vice President for Southeast Asia and South Asia Frontier for Google Asia Pacific. And we asked Sapna to come on this week to talk about the newly released and annual economy, that's e hyphen economy, a Southeast Asia report that Google puts together each year with Temasek and Bain. So I'm going to thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. It's so wonderful to be here. So the digital economy is a topic du jour every day in Washington. And I think everybody is vaguely excited about Southeast Asia, but doesn't always know why or where to place that excitement in the region. So this report is I think uniquely valuable to those of us working on the region each year. We certainly used the 2021 version a lot with a report that we did on the relative scale and success of, of digital economies in the region a couple years back. Could you maybe walk listeners through a little bit what exactly we mean when we talk about the digital economy in the region and, and how you pulled this report together? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's exactly why we've put this report together because we need to make sure that we create more excitement for an exciting region, but also to help really unpack the different components of a very diverse region. So our report methodology covers a set of countries and sectors, and it looks at the digital economy in specific and the growth drivers across Southeast Asia's six biggest countries, ASEAN six, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. It goes into the depths of sizing certain sectors, in particular e-commerce, travel, transport, online media, food delivery, and financial services. The research has a number of components as a part of it. We have a set of consumer insights, which we commission through Kantar. We work with Bain, as you mentioned, to do a lot of the sizing for the sectors. We use Google Trends. We have Temasek research, which goes into the depths of what's happening in terms of funding. We have expert interviews and new this year for the first time. This is our eighth year our eighth annual report of doing the Economy Southeast Asia report. And for the first time, we added a consumer confidence barometer. We're in a world where customers, you know, their confidence is, is fluctuating. So this year, we use search interest data to measure consumer confidence in this changing economy and looked at a bunch of multiple macroeconomic indicators to sense how consumers are feeling on everything from search interest on investments to jobs. So, I mean, there's a lot in this report, right? It's nearly 200 pages, but I like the fact that every year when you produce this report, there's also a, a searchable online infographics filled site that accompanies the written report. And you mentioned that there was a new component this year, but I also noticed that there was an addition of a reference to the sustainable digital economy. And maybe we can go a little more into that later, but could you maybe speak a little to it now? Of course, yeah. You know, this is it's been an interesting time that we've seen across the board. And while there are certain things that haven't changed as we've done the report year on year, for example, what hasn't changed is that the region shows immense resilience in weathering some of the economic headwinds. For example, 
GMV continues to be up. GDP has been relatively stable. You haven't seen the inflation rates that have peaked in other parts of the world to the same extent. And so what I would say, though, has been the big shift is thinking about profitability. And when we say sustainability, that means the profitability of the companies in the region. In the past, we looked at the top line. We looked at gross merchandise value, or GMV, to understand and assess the region's potential. But this year, for the first time, we shifted the report to focus on profitability, and we sized up the region's revenue. And so what the report found is that Southeast Asia's revenue is growing 1.7x the rate of GMV, or gross merchandise value. What this means is that companies are becoming healthier, and this means that as focus on profits, focus on sustainable economics. What's happened is that there, you see that this, the dichotomy between profitability and GMV, they're not at odds with each other, but you need to make sure that as this region grows, that the, the economic foundation is strong. And so the fact that it's growing at 1.7x the rate of GMV shows a shift in how companies are, are thriving. And the big headline for the report was that the region hit $100 billion in revenue in Southeast Asia, which I think is just phenomenal. The $100 billion, the report breaks it out and notes that $70 billion of that comes from e-commerce, travel, transport, which is, I guess, everything from you know Gojek and Grab to food delivery, right? And media, which I guess leaves $30 billion for financial services, which, if I'm right, that's not surprising. But, but which of those is having the healthiest growth, right? I mean, if, if people are looking at those five sectors and thinking, what's driving this, you know, as you said, 1.7x growth in profitability revenue versus the gross merchandise value, I assume it's not spread equally across all parts of the digital economy. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, the the positive thing is, is that all digital economy sectors have been showing positive growth trajectory in the region. I think, you know, when we started this report, I met my friends from Bain and Tomasic last week, and we were chatting about when we started this report, we were actually quite worried about what the numbers would show. It was tough year, but the good news is that when we did our analysis, all digital economy sectors are showing positive growth trajectory. But travel and transport are unique in that they're set to exceed pre-pandemic levels this year. And so travel grew the fastest, 63% constant annual growth rates on its path to recovery fully, which is notable, actually it will exceed where it was before. And the sector's revenue is reaching 14 billion, increasing 60% year on year. So, you know, with online travel seeing significant momentum in places like Thailand, this will continue to be a growth driver. Transport also posted the strong recovery, 30% constant annual growth rates. But notably, as you mentioned, the, the companies in this in this sector, they have had successful monetization. So you see that while growth is about 30%, when it comes to monetization, it's almost 50%, which again shows the health of the underlying economic fundamentals. So we expect a full recovery here as well. Now, digital financial services, it's been on a strong growth trajectory for many years now. COVID accelerated, but it's a significant milestone. And the notable point this year is that now digital payments make up 50% of all transaction value. And that is the notable piece. I would say 
financial service has been growing. We've seen that, but the fact that it now makes up half of all transaction value is what's really notable. That was probably the most eye-popping stat for me. And maybe it's because I'm an elder millennial, but the entire, <laughs> or at least all the, the big six economies, to have more than 50% of payments taking place digitally. How does that compare to other comparable regions of the globe? And how does that compare to the U.S., if we know, for probably half of our listeners who are U.S.-based? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I grew up in financial services, worked for the first part of my career in the U.S. And while our report looks at digital payments in Southeast Asia, I don't have comparison points using this methodology. But if you look at reports overall with regional comparison, it's always shown that APAC and Asia-Pacific is the undisputed leader in digital payments adoption. It feels different here. You mentioned it, you know, your experience. I, I grew up in the U.S. and the state of Payments adoption, I would say, is it's slower there. It's it's you don't understand it till you actually visit the region and you see how fast behavior changes with digital payments. And so with the huge increase in smartphone penetration, government initiatives in the region, e-commerce growth and fintech innovation, coupled with like this user dimension where there's a willingness to try. This is what really creates this notable difference here versus the rest of the world. And you can say it's irreversible. I think there was a question like during the pandemic, some of the behavior, huge roller coaster that we were seeing, is it going to go back? But you know what we've seen is that the changes are irreversible. Like we're seeing continuous adoption. And it's not just in transaction behavior. We're also seeing it in digital lending. And I think this is a unique one as well. It's the single biggest driver of the 30 billion DFS revenue. And so you see this coupling of consumer demand with high lending rates, and it's attracting underbanked customers and small businesses are participating significantly. And so there's just this increasing interest in this region. And I think it's very notable and you see it even in our own products as Google, you, know, you see the difference in this region. I can attest to that buzz and that excitement as a Southeast Asian living in the U.S. I always feel there's a lag every time I go back to the region with all sorts of technological advances, but particularly in digital payments. I feel like such a dinosaur going back to Southeast Asia when everyone's pulling out their e-wallets. But it's somehow one thing that struck me about not just this year's reports, but preceding years as well, it's very business focused, it's very business driven. And I think one of the stats that really stood out to me was the point about top 30% of Southeast Asian spenders accounting for more than 70% of digital economy spend. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering, like, what does this mean? What do all these huge, exciting figures mean for the person on the ground, for the user, the consumer who is contributing to, you know, these big profit margins? You know, that's an interesting one, you know, uh in terms of what it means for consumers on the ground, I'm not sure if the takeaways are for the customers or for the businesses. I mean, the what the insight is, is that there's a distinction that needs to be made between who we think are high value users in the digital economy versus those that are. I think there's a lot of assumptions made about these users and that things like affluence lead to participation in the digital economy. And what we are trying to share is that 
when we defined high value users as the top 30% of spenders in the digital economy, looking across verticals, what we saw is that high value users do not equate to affluent. Only half of high value users come from the affluent segment and 30% of high value users come from non-metro cities. And so it's important for businesses to note this as they're thinking about their customer base and where and how they grow, because a lot of assumptions I've seen this is the assumption from other parts of the world being made based on spending behavior and income, right? And I think that's important for us not to fall to that trap here. And what I think is incredible for us to see is that you have a set of users who clearly are finding a value coming from the digital economy. They're participating. And the most important thing we want businesses to understand is we need to keep a focus on digital inclusion, right? Because there is participation from different groups. Let's not make assumptions. But what we need to see is that businesses and governments invest in supporting more digital inclusion and participation rates as we go forward. Because otherwise we may find, you know, just infrastructure being developed in certain metro cities or a focus on on affluence in terms of participation. So that was the intent of us really diving into this topic a little bit more. Sandra, could we follow on that topic just a moment longer? The report notes that because of investments that have been made in rural connectivity, we are seeing an increase in participation in the digital economy outside of cities, but it's not growing as fast as that digital divide is, meaning that even as rural citizens in Southeast Asia are taking up things like digital lending and banking services, their urban counterparts are still accelerating faster and faster. What can be done to close that gap? I mean, are you seeing the things that we would need to see in the region to slow the growth Mm -hmm. of that digital divide? Yeah, the good news is that we've seen such great progress on digital inclusion. And that's why we wanted to shine a light on the word participation instead, because we've made inroads into rural areas. We've bridged connectivity gaps, I think because of investments and paying attention to this over time. We see parts of Southeast Asia that are more penetrated digitally than parts of the U.S., right? And so, you know, Malaysia and Singapore are two amazing places that you have a clear advantage in terms of digital penetration. But there's a growing gap between offerings, right? What digital products and services are being offered outside of the metro areas, for example? So you might see that e-commerce is not represented fully. When we looked at demand and supply, where are people on on Google searching for e-commerce options and where is their supply? And we created these heat maps that we also included in the report. And what we saw is that there's a gap between the demand and supply of digital products and services, particularly outside the metro cities. And so while these users have internet access, they can't participate, though they want to. And so that's the risk of a widening digital economic divide. And this is something I do think we can get ahead of this. What can be done, as you asked? Well, investors play a role here. We need to keep this digital inclusion lens when evaluating new opportunities and encourage their portfolio companies to address the digital participation issues. I was so happy when to see our partners and Tomasic and, and Bain, for example, really leaning into this conversation. 
NGOs can also partner with governments and the private sector and help with education initiatives or introducing economic development plans to increase skills in certain areas. But I think the biggest one is investments in infrastructure. I mentioned the heat maps that we created in terms of demand and supply. When there's insufficient infrastructure in places or road density or just delivery points, right? Are, are there enough delivery points being created to be able to create cost-efficient supply models in rural areas? I think that's really important that businesses need to keep an open mind. And, and that's it's really hard to do in this environment when and that focus on profitability is there, right? So the assumption can be, let's invest where we're already making, where we have the highest ROI, but then we may not build out the infrastructure in certain places that frankly is needed. And so that is uh, one of the key takeaways, I hope, that people are taking away from the report. And, and we've seen good interest and in, across all the e-commerce players in this point. So I'm hopeful. So now we've already noted how comprehensive this report is. It's, it's like a giant balance sheet of the state of the digital economy for businesses and corporations. I'm just wondering if you could have expanded on it, you and your partners could have expanded on it more. You know, what are the missing pieces that you would have included? Because to me, I feel like this focus on growth and consumption is taken as an inevitability, you know, and that all growth is good up against the climate crisis, up against, you know, arguments about degrowth. Where does it stand? Alina saying the 200 yeah. pages was not enough. She was so angry <laughs> that the report ended <laughs> such a short amount of time. 120 plus pages, that's right. I, I wanted know. more, Sapna. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I don't know if you, you probably didn't want more, you're being nice, but you would you would, might have wanted one thing, which we did get a bunch of questions around, which was why didn't we measure the profitability we looked at GMV, we looked at top line and revenue, but we didn't calculate the profits for a number of reasons. I don't want to get into all the details, but if there's one thing that we would consider in the future, it's adding that dimension. What's hard to do this year, but something that we would love to consider as we go forward and we're hopeful about, because that that's the missing link of the equation, right? Ultimately, the report talks a lot about investment and exits and the funding winter. And the number one thing on everyone's mind is around profits. And so if we could square that away, that would be nice. But I think we took an intermediate step this year and looked at revenue, which was also, I'm glad we did. I guess all data is hard to come by. And this that one was, we were much more able to do that across the portfolios that we were looking at. And so, yeah. That, that's my big takeaway. But yeah, there's a lot of information and there continues to be lots of questions. I think the other one that, you know, you asked the question about comparison to other places. It's really hard to do comparisons to other places because they're obviously methodology is a consideration. And so, you know, over time, expanding this report to more regions has also been a thought that we've had. So I was going to kind of skate by this in the interest of time, but you use the term funding winter, which is a very evocative phrase included at the very beginning of the executive summary. It's clearly something you wanted to highlight. It seems to run counter to the overall good news story of this booming digital economy. So can you unpack a little bit what is the funding winter in the region? Why why would there be relative private sector disinterest given all the positive signs that fill the report? Yeah. 
good news is Southeast Asia is not alone, right? So you could argue this has been systemic and you've seen it across the world. And so funding has declined, right? I think it was important for us to note the the state that we're in and not assume that everything is up and to the right because private funding did decline to its lowest level in six years after record highs, right? I think it's important to remember that we went through these record highs and now in line with global shifts, towards you know high cost of capital and issues across the funding life cycle we've seen a correction and we're not alone there is has been uncertainty surrounding the profitability pathways of some companies in this challenging capital market environment and so exits have been more difficult to achieve that's the reality i think the good news is that we do see that funding declines while they've been across all all investment stages we're seeing a growing portion of deal activity is being funneled into more nascent sectors, which is signaling that investors are diversifying their portfolios, which is good. We've also seen that the increased prudence that we have by investors and by companies is that there's a lot more investment that will be possible in the future. Dry powder, that amount of capital and investment that could be invested has actually risen to 15.7 billion at the end of 2022. Um, it's increased from 12 billion in 2021. So this shows that there is there is fuel available to propel Southeast Asia's digital economy to the next stage of growth. But to attract investments right now, what we need to see is digital economies and companies need to have clear pathways to profitability. So the good news is everything that's been happening will lead to these exit pathways over time. We're very confident and the dry powder is there for that investor. So I think it's just a matter of timing, but I think one of the the call outs of this report is its candor, transparency, and we didn't think it would be right of us to ignore the fact that private funding has declined. You know, Sabna, I just wanted to maybe try to push you a little more on my earlier question about this assumption that all growth is good. I think one of the points that the report brings up is that ESG awareness has grown, yet there is a gap between rhetoric and reality. And I'm just wondering if, set aside you know, global headwinds, if this positive trajectory continues for Southeast Asia, how much can the region sustain if there is this gap between ESG commitments and what is actually demonstrated on the ground? You know, that's a great question, you know, and what we've seen is that there's been good progress in certain areas like digital inclusion. You know, there's still opportunity and and nations are advancing and there's still, there's challenges when it comes to things like policies, cross-border payments, and, you know, some of the things that make it hard to do business, which, which we need to acknowledge during this time, right? I think it's the report that we had the year before had a certain call out to ESG. And we didn't in particularly go into ESG this year. And that might be a question. Maybe that's why you're asking me the question, why, why we didn't call it out. And we're cognizant that ESG will continue to see significant adoption across things like energy efficiency, there's climate disclosure requirements. You know, you have the digital economy framework agreement for ASEAN countries. And it's important that we continue to highlight the the enablers as we go forward. And we think there's twofold where more work needs to be done. I mentioned infrastructure already. 
you know, it goes beyond cables and connectivity. We need to think about investments in spectrum and lower cost mobile data plans, affordable devices, affordability. And so that's one particular call out. And I think the other is really when it comes to digital trade. And the number one area we hear quite a bit of the challenges from small businesses. You know, there, there needs to be a stronger pan-ASEAN coordination. We see the frameworks in place and so movements in the right direction, but these are going to be critical in designing data governance regimes and frameworks that are aligned with international standards. And, you know, things like cross-border data flows are the most important opportunity that we have. And so it's going to take commitment, investment, time for ASEAN to build this inclusive, open and interoperable region and really propel digital trade as we go forward. So we can't ignore that there are challenges that need to be addressed. Sapna, thank you so much for joining us on Southeast Asia Radio. And Alina, of course, thank you as always for helping me steer the ship. Thanks all of you for listening. And please tune in in two weeks for our next episode. The biggest country in the region is having an election, and we'll be here to talk about it. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer your questions. Do us a favor and subscribe. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Angus Lamb, Corey Donnelly, and Tappy Lung. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Kitson. And I'm Lauren Mai. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. 